Hello and welcome. You are listening to Nomosfilm, a legal podcast series created by global law students at Tilburg University for people who are interested in law. Our goal is to emphasize the human experience of the law as it affects lives across the world each day. This is the first of those episodes. For purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. Hello and welcome to Nomosfilm the podcast series that discusses trending global legal issues through the human experience of the law. So, in our maiden episode, we would like to draw attention to an area of law that has not necessarily been covered in great detail regarding the refugees fleeing the Syrian crisis. The issue of statelessness within this context is an area that is misunderstood in the media and is of such importance to the individuals it affects. Before we begin discussing statelessness within the refugee EU context, it's important to know what statelessness is, and a good place to start is to understand what having a nationality actually means. When we talk about being a national of a country, what we are essentially saying is that there is a particular legal link between a state and a person. What this means in practice is that as a national of that state, you have both special rights given by that state but also duties. So, for example, if we think about rights, an example would be your right to vote in a political election. And an example of duties would be having the duty of military service. And how nationality is given or lost to individuals is determined by the state itself. But when you look at nationality laws generally, there are two main approaches taken by states to determine who will be a national. The first is known as jus sanguinis, which is essentially a family link to the state. So, for example, your parents are nationals, and therefore you can gain the link and become a national through the bloodline. The other is called jus soli, which is about your connection to the territory of that state. For example, if you are born in the state, or you have been a long-time resident of that state, you can acquire a nationality. So, now we have a better grasp on what it means to be a national of a state, we can look at what statelessness actually means. When we say that a person is stateless, what this means is that the person doesn't have a nationality from any country in the world. There are a lot of reasons why this can happen. A good illustration is simply a conflict of nationality laws. So. Say that you are born into a country which follows the eusanguinous approach, 
so nationality through a family link, but the country that your parents are from give nationality on a use solely basis, so based on where you were born within the territory, there is the potential for this child to find themselves to be stateless, even with some connection to two different countries. This is a simple example of how statelessness can occur. But there are many other reasons that attribute to statelessness. A big issue is discrimination in nationality laws that have aimed to target and exclude certain groups, but it can also arise out of state succession, for example. So, when we look at statelessness from a broad perspective, we can see that the UN estimates that there are over 10 million people worldwide who are actually stateless, which caused the I Belong campaign to end statelessness worldwide. And there are international laws that are in place to safeguard against this occurrence. For example, we have the 1954 Convention Relating to the Status of Stateless Persons and the 1961 Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness. We can also see that when we look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that in Article 15 it states that everyone has the right to a nationality. So now that we have a better grip of what statelessness actually means, we're going to turn our attention to the refugee situation within Europe, looking in particular at Syria as a starting point and the Netherlands as a country of destination. We were able to interview Laura van Vaas, who is a co-director of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, which is a non-profit organization that focuses on promoting a human rights response to statelessness all over the world. And one of the issues that they work on is the nexus between statelessness and forced displacement. And she was able to give a greater understanding of the issues of statelessness within Syria itself. So in the Syrian context, uh, there was a problem of statelessness already before the conflict. There is a group uh, within the country who were excluded from nationality in the 1960s. Uh, it's a part of the Kurdish population. So not all Kurds from Syria are stateless, but a part of the Kurdish population in a particular province were stripped of their nationality in the 1960s. And their children and their grandchildren also were stateless and it is passed on from one generation to the next. So even before the conflict, there were people who experienced statelessness in the country and that obviously hasn't changed due to the war. Um, but the, the, the conflict itself and the displacement creates new risks because, for instance, it can be much harder to get your birth registered when there's a war going on and you might not have access to the civil registry office or even records can become destroyed. And if you can't prove where you were born and who your parents are, it can be then difficult to claim a nationality, especially if, for instance, you're from a minority group and the government has other reasons to want to exclude you, then it becomes even easier if you can't prove parts of your identity. When we look at the figures to date, it is estimated that there are presently over 4 million Syrian refugees living within Syria's neighboring states, such as Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon. With an estimated 70,000 Syrian babies born within Turkey alone, 
and tens of thousands estimated within the region as a whole, it's important to look at the legal issues that could possibly arise for these Syrian children, as well as looking at the issues these children could face en route to Europe. So under Syrian nationality law, there is a clause uh, which can be used to strip people of their nationality if they spend a long time abroad without permission. Uh, It's not clear whether that is being invoked against a refugee population, but there is the room in the law for that to be done. um, And there's the possibility that it might be used for for a political gain, um, especially for those people who perhaps fled early on in the conflict or from certain areas or who were quite vocal in opposing the authorities before leaving. Um, they may be targeted for having their nationality withdrawn. And then there are actually provisions in the law which the Syrian authorities could use to do that. Um, but it's not clear to what extent that's that's really happening. Um, what is more problematic, I suppose, for the broader refugee population is that as the conflict endures, if it goes on for a long time, and you maybe have several generations potentially even born abroad, Um, proving the original link to Syria, accessing original documents, uh, applying for reissuance of documents, it all becomes more complicated. And for most people, that won't be a problem. But often when we see a protracted refugee situation, so one that's gone on for several decades, you'll see it at some point it becomes hard for people to prove that they were ever from that country. It is estimated that almost 600,000 stateless people are currently living in Europe. The increased risks of migrants becoming stateless, either because of Syrian policy or because of instances that happened on their way to Europe, might change this. We asked Laura about her thoughts on the possible impacts that an influx of stateless people would have in Europe. There are a number of ways in which statelessness has confronted uh, the EU as part of this displacement from Syria. One is that some of the refugees who arrive in the EU were stateless even before the conflict. Um, So they arrive with no nationality. Uh, That situation doesn't change by their displacement. And they obviously don't have a nationality to pass to their children. So that means that if those stateless refugees are having children within Europe, that there is this problem of statelessness for the children as well that Europe has has to deal with. Um, Another issue is this question of uh, loss of the link over time, but that's something that we'll only really be able to gauge in the future. And there it's just important to help people to maintain um, their connection to the country, make sure that if they have documents, these are preserved and uh, as much as possible you, you create and maintain a paper trail for people. Um, One of the ways in which the Syria crisis in particular is bringing the problem of statelessness to Europe is in the fact that under Syrian law, women can't pass nationality to their children. So within Europe, there is no longer any gender discrimination in nationality laws, which is great. Um, But if you have people arriving from a foreign country outside Europe where there is still gender discrimination it still brings the problem to Europe. So you could have children born to a Syrian refugee mother and an unknown father, perhaps because of uh, gender-based violence en route to Europe. And there are real problems for that child to access a nationality because the get, option of getting Syrian nationality from the mother is just not available. Having looked at the issue of statelessness within Syria and also the ways in which it can occur through the current refugee situation. We asked Laura what her thoughts were from the perspective of a European approach. 
There are, I suppose, two ways in which uh, we can separate the question of the sort of the policy response to statelessness. One aspect is how do we make sure that those people who are stateless and are arriving in Europe and are unable to return um, receive protection, some kind of legal status, and are able to enjoy their rights while they're in Europe. On that side of things, because of the situation in Syria, uh, in general, people who are coming from Syria are recognised as refugees or granted some kind of protection status because of the conflict. So the immediate question of making sure that they can access their rights, they have uh, access to services the moment doesn't really arise in the context of Syria because the conflict there ensures that people have protection here. Um, that may change if it becomes safe for people to go home. Um, for those refugees who are also stateless, that may be a more complex process. The second side of things is in relation to ensuring that there aren't new cases of statelessness created, for instance, from Syrian mothers who are unable to pass nationality to their children. And there it really comes down to the way that Europe's nationality laws operate and whether there are safeguards that grant nationality to children born in Europe if they would be stateless. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a more problematic area right now because if those safeguards aren't in place now, the children who are being born today um, are unable to fulfil their right to a nationality. The issue of statelessness is not only confined to the nationality laws of countries like Syria or the policy approach of the EU. Member states, that is the countries that form part of the EU, have a big role to play in the way stateless people are treated. In the specific case of the EU, each member state has the right to legislate their particular nationality laws. Of course, they should respect the different international obligations they have to prevent statelessness, but unfortunately, this doesn't always happen. We have also been able to reach out to Jelle Klaas, who is a human rights lawyer working within the Netherlands. He works with Fischer Afflekaten, working on social and economic human rights, as well as being the project coordinator of the public interest litigation project of NJCM. How do you think the Netherlands could improve their laws when it comes to these undocumented individuals? That's a difficult question for me because I'm a lawyer. Um, and I have a very clear opinion on things like this and that clouds my lawyering judgment. Let's just start with not being too strict and let's start with putting human rights at first, not talking about quota for refugees, for instance, not talking about uh, ending the refugee treaty and taking people more seriously and giving just giving them a little more slack just uh, i mean these people flat they also if you're from a horrendous economic disaster you people have no food anymore just treat them humanely if you do that if you give them full uh, social and economic human rights and treat them as humans uh, i mean some dogs have more rights in the netherlands than undocumented um, it's also more effective People that feel treated as a human are more able to get their documents and will eventually leave the country more often or get a permit to stay. So I think that will be the first thing. Do you think 
that we have the facilities to help these individuals without documentations. You have, there's a number of organizations, but do you think it's enough to give the legal help and representation that undocumented individuals need within the Netherlands? Uh, no, there are a lot of groups that are doing great uh, that are really, really effective in helping people. And, but most of them are volunteers or they're from a church background or anarchist background or which is great. I mean, all help is welcome. And some municipalities fund groups like that or do some helping their themselves like Groningen, Eindhoven. There are very, a few very good practices. Um, and there are a few lawyers trying to help these people, but it's not that you're really getting very rich from helping these people, which isn't something that you should abide, I think. But but it is very, very difficult to... Uh, I mean, for the whole first process of applying for asylum or for applying for welfare or for shelter, you don't get paid at all as a lawyer. Uh, so you, sh you you have to specialize your whole practice in... in in a way to really be able to help these people the best way possible. And there is a drive in the Dutch legal aid system to make it more difficult for lawyers that specialize in that way, for only helping poor people. Um, so it's, it's, uh, there's far too little help and um, it's very much under pressure. But the main thing is, I mean, it shouldn't be volunteers, churches, anarchists and lawyers helping. It should be the state. Yeah, the Dutch government is definitely a big player in all of these decisions they have to make. Um, and the Netherlands is party to a number of international treaties that have committed to preventing statelessness and avoiding it, especially when it comes to children, but with any undocumented individuals. So in that case, I guess my question is, could the Dutch government be seen as facilitating this type of violation of human rights? Yes, and... Um, it's not just Jelle Klaas saying this, but it's also the European Commission on Social Rights, uh, the UN, uh, the European Union Human Rights uh, Councillor, all saying that the Netherlands is violating human rights. Uh, as w the statelessness We don't have a statelessness recognition procedure. So how can you seriously say you want to combat statelessness if you do not know who are stateless and who are not and you have no procedure in place to make a selection. Uh, there are 80,000 people without with a nationality unknown in the Dutch registers and we know that, well, at least half of them can be stateless. But there's no way for them to uh, get beyond that point. What would be the most effective way to change the legislation now? If we could lobby the government to change legislation, what do you think what laws should be changed first? First of all is to, again, there are two legal spheres, the migrant asylum sphere, and I think migrant lawyers would say um, one of the main things that should change is the buitenschuld procedure, that you, that you have the no-fault procedure. Um, that's a sort of a rest category for people that cannot get a, a asylum. And if it's not their fault because the embassy doesn't cooperate or whatever, they could get a permit to stay. But this procedure is so extremely narrow and, and so difficult to, to get, it's, it's, it's not really effective. So I think migrant lawyers would say you have to change that. From my perspective as a social economic human rights lawyer and from a, as a human rights project coordinator, 
I think one of the main things we should we should scrap the linkage principle. The linkage principle was uh, entered in 1998, saying that uh, if you are undocumented, you lose the right to well all social rights and economic rights that other people have. So I think if we just scrap that, uh, it would really help because then all the laws that we do have in the Netherlands that are still a remainder of the welfare state could be applied to people that are in desperate situations. Statelessness is a complex issue that affects over 10 million people around the world. Following the journey of a Syrian refugee to the Netherlands, there are so many points where they are at risk of becoming stateless, be it in Syria due to discriminatory policies or on their way to Europe, where Syrian children are born without a father and consequently without a nationality. But the problem doesn't stop at Syria. Countries, like the Netherlands, have made it increasingly hard for stateless people to enjoy their rights, like the linkage principle in the Netherlands, which is a clear violation of international law. The Netherlands even fails at m the most basic obligations, such as being able to distinguish who is stateless, as Yella pointed out. It is easy to get caught up in these types of discussions involving legal, political or institutional arguments, pointing out relevant provisions, violations to human rights and citing case law. Sure, we need those types of arguments to understand the issue and to ultimately change it. But we also need to understand how the black letter of the law affects our daily lives. So let's try to picture how differences in nationality affect your daily life. For most of us, the benefits of having a nationality is something that we take for granted. A luxury that stateless people can't afford. For example, try to remember the first time you wanted to open a bank account. Did they ask for your identification? Perhaps a passport? Or think back to when you enrolled at university. Did you also have to give your nationality? Remember that time you were looking for a job and stumbled upon a career site? Didn't they ask for your nationality then? These are common activities that are overlooked by people who have a nationality, but for stateless people, they are not. Perhaps one of the saddest differences between those who have a nationality and those who do not is having a family. Would you form a family, have a baby, know that there is a risk that your child will be stateless? That is a question that many young couples have to answer for themselves. So, the next time you have to check a box where they ask for your nationality or travel with a passport in your hands, remember that that is not a right that is enjoyed by all. This episode of Nomisfum was produced by Laura Hajnik, Marco Leitner, Catherine Skinner, Adrian Hernandez, Valentine Penne, and myself, Jade Knight. We would like to thank Laura Levan Vass and Yala Klaus for their collaboration. We would also like to thank the Global Law Program at Tilburg Law School for supporting Nomisphone, as well as Professor Philip Paymont. Don't forget to check out our next episode, where we will discuss the Almadi case before the International Criminal Court. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. And also don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Until next time.